0: This is Radio 316. When most people hear the word revelation, they think of the book at the end of the Bible. But here's the thing. The entire Bible is a revelation of God from God. And for that matter, so is everything else in the world around you. Whenever God speaks, whenever God acts, whenever God creates, it reveals something about Him and about His will for that which He has made. His divine fingerprints are everywhere. They cannot be missed. And in today's study, we're going to make this case. If this creator has spoken, if he's revealed himself to us, the created, then it's stupid and silly for us to ignore what he has said. Chapter one, where does our knowledge come from? All right. How do you know the things that you know? If you know that fire is hot, if you know that celery is bad, if you know that 1 plus 1 equals 2, then what are the foundations of this knowledge? You see, you and I might claim to know a lot of things, and some of that knowledge might be very accurate. We might be 10,000% correct in some of the things that we know. But in other areas, what we call knowledge is filled with holes. Either we don't have all the facts, or we've assembled those facts in the wrong way. Whatever the case, assuming that we know anything at all, where did that knowledge come from? Have you ever stopped to consider this? Well, philosophers have long argued that there are three primary ways that people come to know anything. Those three ways are these. Number one, empiricism. Number two, rationalism. And number three, subjectivism. Now, as we start today, let me briefly consider examples of each of these because they're relevant to the case that we're making. Let's start with empiricism. Can you tell me, when you touch your hand to an open flame, is the flame hotter or colder than your skin? Well, you know the answer to that without even having to think about it. It's going to be hotter. Now, how do you know that? Well, this is an example for many of us of empiricism. Empiricism describes knowledge that we learn from experience, or in this case, by touching something hot. We learn things through experiences. We learn things through our senses. Empirical knowledge tends to grow as we grow, as we get older. And this is why no one reads the memoirs of a 12-year-old. Empirical knowledge is not foolproof, but it does build over time, and it does have value. Now, let me ask you a different question. What do you think is the most difficult book in the Bible to study or to understand? Well, as you attempt to answer that question, you're answering that question based on something called rationalism. In other words, you're using your rational thinking mind in order to consider a question, to assemble the data, and to come to a conclusion. Rationalism is another way by which we know things. We reason out the solution. All right, one more question. What is the worst tasting food in the world? Well, if you've already been listening, then you know the answer. The answer is celery. Now, how do I know that? How can I say that? Well, I can say that because my answer is an example of subjectivism. You see, subjectivism is knowledge that we know in our heart, irrespective of whether it's true. The poet Walt Whitman once said this. He said, whatever satisfies the soul must be true. And in this way, many people have knowledge that's not necessarily based on empiricism, not necessarily based on rationalism. It's just something that they know, that they know, that they know. Subjectivism is the same thing as being led by one's feelings. And we can call it knowledge when in truth, it's the shakiest form of knowledge. Now, with all that said, most of the things that you think you know can be traced to one of these three categories, to empiricism, things you've learned by experience, to rationalism, things you've reasoned out, or to subjectivism, just things that you know in your inner self. Now, with all that said, with all that established, as Christians, we believe that there is a fourth, a better way that we come to know things. Now, can you guess what that is? Well, the fourth way that Christians come to know what we know is through what we call revelation, or more specifically, divine revelation. Now, what is divine revelation? Divine revelation is when this transcendent source of data conveys that data directly, authoritatively, and inerrantly to us. And as Christians, we believe He has done so principally through His Word, through His Spirit, and through His Son. We call these things special revelation. With that said, there's other revelation that we see in the world around us, other ways in which God has taught us and trained us that we can pick up on and deduce by just looking around at the world He has made. We call this natural revelation. Now, our object in today's broadcast is not going to do a deep dive into all those things. However, we are going to try to explain why divine revelation from a transcendent external source is necessary for mankind. Why, as created beings, we have to have input from a creator. And if we ignore what the creator has said, that's not just stupid and silly. It's suicidal to try and function in the world he has made without listening to what he has has told us. Chapter 2. Our Need for an External Source of Knowledge or Revelation Alright, let me change it up and ask you a different type of question. Do you think that a drunk, inebriated man should trust his senses? Should he trust his eyes? Should he trust his ears? What do you think? Well, we all know the answer to that is no, absolutely not. And the reason he shouldn't trust those things is because those things are impaired. Those things are not only impaired, but they're limited in terms of what they can see and perceive. And because of that, the knowledge derived from these things is lesser than knowledge derived from more reliable and less impaired sources. You see, there's things that you know that are the equivalent of a drunken man trusting what he knows. There's things you believe to be true based on your perception of the world around you, not understanding how impaired your perception is. Knowledge that we derive from our senses or from our experiences has value. We have to rely upon it in order to survive in this world. What I'm suggesting, however, is that it is limited. The things that we claim to know empirically or from our own experiences are limited by the experiences themselves, which is why I said earlier, no one reads the memoirs of a 12-year-old because the 12-year-old does not have the experiences or the judgment to assimilate those experiences in a way that's going to do us any good. So what? what? What about rational knowledge? What about rationalism and the ability we have to deduce things through reason? Well, do you remember any famous uh, TV characters that were known for their usage of logic and reason? Well, one of my favorite shows is Star Trek. And from Star Trek, of course, we have Mr. Spock. Now, Spock was a case study in rationalism. His knowledge and his conclusions were a byproduct of reasoning and deduction. Now, although logic and reason are good and helpful tools, and I I hope you have them, Rationalism is still inferior to divine or transcendent revelation that comes from a better source than you. You see, it's inferior in the same way that empiricism is. It requires data points that you may or may not have. A computer, Mr. Spock, for example, he needed data. He needed information. And if he doesn't have it, he can't compute. In the same way, rationalism, just like empiricism, can be incomplete in its data set and impaired in its operation. So that's a brief critique of empiricism and rationalism. What about subjectivism? Well, as we said before, subjectivism involves inner subjective knowledge. What we know is based on our gut or our intuition. Now, why is subjectivism the worst way to process or to attain knowledge? Why is subjectivism unreliable? Well, we could go on all day with this, but the main reason is because a sinful man's feelings are a moving target. What you feel in your heart of hearts today, you might not feel tomorrow. Additionally, your feelings are a function of biases, sinful biases for all of us, and sinful inclinations. Sinful hearts, guess what? Sinful hearts come to sinful conclusions. If you say that I know that I know that I know something that's emanating from my sinful predispositions and fallen, deprived nature, don't be surprised if what you know that you know that you know is dead wrong in the economy of God. Feelings don't compare to information. Information doesn't compare to knowledge. Knowledge doesn't compare to wisdom. And wisdom must be grounded in divine truth. All right, let's change things up a bit. Have you, been, uh, have you been to college? And if you did, if you attended college or high school or what have you, did you expect to learn? Did you expect to learn things? Do colleges, do universities emphasize education? Well, yes, they do. However, they emphasize that knowledge as being derived from the three things we've taken time to critique, empiricism, rationalism, and subjectivism alone. Our higher universities, for what good that term is, have absolutely discounted any source of knowledge or wisdom or information that transcends what we can derive from those three categories of thought. Institutions of higher education generally don't incorporate the highest source of knowledge, which comes from the one who made everything around us. If anything, they discount that knowledge. Now, why do they do that? Why do they do that? Why doesn't a higher learning institution seek out the highest source of knowledge, which comes from one that is greater than us combined? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, including the fact that fallen, unregenerate man doesn't want God's input, doesn't want God's knowledge. Fallen, unregenerate man does his level best to ignore, to reject, to rebel against what God has told him. So that's that's probably the main answer. With that said, what happens if you do that? If you eliminate the high source of knowledge from higher learning institutions, what do you get? Well, what you get is a sham, which is what most of those institutions have become. If you divorce the study of math or science or nature or love and beauty and art and the like from the source of all these things, then how can you pretend to comprehend them? This is foolishness. Now, to prove this point, that this has always been an issue for fallen man, but it is an increasing issue in our day, think of what mankind has done to its understanding of sexuality and gender. Now, back in 1828, Webster, you remember Webster's Dictionary? He defined marriage this way. He said that marriage is the act of uniting a man and a woman for life. It's wedlock, the legal union of a man and a woman. Marriage is a contract that is both civil and religious, by which the parties engage to live together in mutual affection and fidelity to death shall them part. Marriage was instituted by God himself for the purpose of preventing the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes, for promoting domestic felicity, and for securing the maintenance and education of the children. What source do you think Mr. Webster used to come up with that definition? Well it would seem like, from his own words, it would seem like he relied upon divine revelation. Now that was back in 1828. I would wager Mr. Webster is rolling over in his grave at what his dictionary says now. Can you guess how Webster's Dictionary defines marriage today? Well, here's, here's the definition. It's very short, and you'll notice it's gender neutral. Webster's Dictionary says this currently. Marriage is the state of being united as spouses in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law and involves the mutual relation of married persons. You see, at one point, Mankind turned to a higher source of knowledge In order to define man himself In our institutions But that source of knowledge God and his word Have been subsequently rejected By later generations Man now defines things Not based on transcendent revelation But based on other means Man now defines sexuality and gender Based on subjectivism Skipped right past rationalism And right to subjectivism This is what we call epistemology Backwards. And this introduces a world where subjective feelings are now the top of the epistemological iceberg. These days, what you think or what you feel about gender or sexuality or God knows what else has become the highest authority. What sinful men want to be true is what they claim to be true. Subjectivism has won the day, and that is the death knell for any civilization. Divine revelation, the greatest source of knowledge that a man can have, is now treated as the enemy by the very institutions that we charge with the education of our children. And left unchanged, we are in a cultural death spiral. We claim to be wise, but we reject the source of all wisdom. Garbage in, garbage out. Chapter 3. Garbage in, garbage out. Let's spend our remaining time by explaining why divine revelation is the best source of knowledge. Way back in the garden, back in Genesis 2, Adam, our forefather, was able to walk and talk with God in the cool of the day, in the cool of the afternoon. At that time, the created could learn directly from the creator. Now, why would that be good? Why would that be advantageous to Adam? Well, among other reasons is this, because he could go straight to the source with any questions. If Adam wanted to learn about squirrels or acorns or trees or forests or bees or whatever, he didn't have to use Google. With that said, God did not limit that revelation just to Adam. Rather, he has granted revelation of himself to the whole world. Even after the fall, even after man was evicted from the garden, God has continued to speak through two primary means, and we categorized them earlier as natural and special revelation. Natural revelation is what nature reveals to us about God. There's all manner of things you can learn about God just by looking at the world that he has made. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech, night unto night they reveal knowledge. So we can learn a great deal about our maker simply by looking at what he has made. His fingerprints, his breadcrumbs all around us. So that's natural revelation. Special revelation is somewhat different, and honestly, it's far better. You see, the limitation of natural revelation is that you can look at the world around you and properly deduce that there is a God. You can look at what God has made and determine that he exists. With that said, you cannot necessarily know everything about him. You cannot learn his name. You cannot learn his various attributes and characteristics, only some of them. And because that's true, we need additional revelation or special revelation which includes direct authoritative communication that he has given us about himself and about his will and plan for us. A simple example of this comes from Hebrews 1, which says that God, who at various times spoke to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. By any measure, there's no higher form of revelation that you and I can ever want or ever get than that. There's no greater fount of knowledge, no greater fount of wisdom than when a perfect God opens his mouth and speaks. For all of the sermons ever preached, none of them compare with a sermon like the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why is that? Well, it's because Christ could speak knowledgeably and authoritatively in a way that no one else is capable of. That's one of the prerogatives of being God. And after God, after Christ spoke, his words were then recorded. Recorded for us in Scripture to read, and on top of that reading, his spirit then takes those words and tattoos them upon our heart. This is special revelation. Natural revelation gives us some data to work with, but special revelation gives us much more. Through natural revelation, we can observe the reality of something like death. We can figure out that death exists and we don't want it. But through special revelation, we're told how and why death exists. And we're also told that death does not have the last word thanks to the person and work of Christ. Beyond this, special revelation tells the whole world, a fallen world, how to get along with one another. Think of the Ten Commandments or think of so much of Christ's own teaching. These passages tell depraved people and living in a depraved world how to live in a cohesive fashion without blowing everything up. And even a secular society has benefited across the centuries from these revelations, from things like the Ten Commandments. Even a secular world has incorporated things that God has told us into our social contracts. From one end of the globe to the other, the things that God has told us about himself or about mankind or how to get along with one another have affected and informed the whole course of history. And dear God, thank God that he does this. Could you imagine? Could you imagine a universe with a silent God? Could you imagine a universe where God just looks down at us occasionally through a telescope and never once tells us anything about himself or about his purpose in forming us or what we're supposed to do with our days and do with our time? Could you imagine trying to carve out our own celestial identity without without inclining our ear to the one who put breath in our lungs? Now, here's the thing. That's exactly what our institutions seem hell-bent on doing. As we said earlier in our broadcast, most of our institutions go to extreme length to excise, to omit God's input, God's authority from our lives. Now, why? Why do they do that? If mankind bears the marks of being designed, and if there is a designer, or even if there might be a designer, shouldn't we at least try to figure out what this designer, what this maker, what this creator, what this god has said? Well, of course we should. Even the philosophers, even secular philosophers, the Greek philosophers understood that much. The alternative is to bury our collective heads in the sand. And so that's what we do, broadly speaking. But have you ever wondered why? Why do we bury our heads in the sand? Why do we do that rather than look up for God's input? Well, I I already hinted at that, but the short answer is this. People don't mind God's input so long as they can confine that input to what they want to hear. They don't mind God's input so long as he's just this genie who solves our problems, solves our riddles, hands out the goodies and the like. But what if that God is not content fitting in our box? What if that God wants to tell us and has the prerogative to tell us how to live our lives? What if this God has both the inclination and the authority to tell us what to do and to tell us what not to do? And what if the things that he tells us don't match up with the way that we want to live our lives? What if God's will and our will comes into conflict? What if that happens not just with individuals, but with the whole society or with the whole nation? Well, what is that nation going to do? Well, they're going to put that God on mute, so to speak. They're going to pretend that he's not there. They're going to excise his revelation from our institutions and from our social conversation. That's what they'll do. In fact, that's what we've done. However, if God loves us, he won't let us get away with it. Chapter 4, The Benefits of Divine Revelation As we wrap up today's short study on the concept of divine revelation, I want to quote a famous passage from Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, Jesus said this. He said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the wind blew, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and great was its fall. And so it was, Matthew 7 goes on to say, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority. You know, a number, number of years back, I had a contractor who gave me some very good advice. However, at that time, I didn't take it. I thought I knew better than he did. And I was wrong. I made a decision that didn't end up working out. I listened to myself rather than listen to him. I rejected good input from a more knowledgeable source. Now, in our day and age, we have a whole demographic that doesn't listen to good input. We call them teenagers. Actually, I wish it was just our teenagers that did this. The truth is there are stubborn and prideful senior citizens out there doing the same thing, tuning out helpful input from wise, experienced sources. Now, tuning out your parents or your doctor or your teachers is one thing, as unwise as that might be. But, but, tuning out God is a whole different Matter, And it's different not just because he's smarter than you, although he is. It's different because he can enforce the consequences for the rejection of his word. If you ignore your doctor, he'll just shrug and go back to patients that listen better than you do. But God is not just going to shrug his shoulders and go deal with someone else. Rather, he has the right and the authority to deal with you and to deal with your rejection of his words. We see that in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, Jesus was saying that he is not only the source of the wise sayings upon which wise people build their house, he's not only the rock upon which they build their house for the future, he was also saying that he is the storm. You get this? He is the storm that descended, the floods that came, the winds that blew upon the house of the impenitent. And that's part of the reason that the people were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority not only to declare truth, but to administer its outcomes. This was implied in this passage from Matthew 7. With that said, this same God has not only told the nations how to build their house, how to live and to walk and the like, he's told you. So the question is the same question that we have with every passage in Scripture. What are you going to do about it? If you've been plugging your ears to specific parts of God's Word, or maybe to the totality of it, if you've been ignoring the special, informed, authoritative revelations He's given to your life and circumstances, how long do you plan to do so? A perfect, all-knowing God who loves you. As a son or a daughter who has adopted you into his family, has then whispered to you or shouted, if need be, to get your attention. So the question remains, does he have it? Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion." Today, if you have been, stop hardening your heart, stop plugging your ears, try the reverse, pick up his word, go to church, get in a devotional, attend a Bible study. These are the mechanisms, the God-ordained mechanisms by which he will bring light to your circumstances and a path to your feet.